Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Tom Salemi. You are now listening to the MedTech Talk podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to hand over the mic to uh, to Kevin Hikes today. Kevin, of course, is the co-chair of the MedTech Conference. He's also CEO of Medivention and had been CEO of Cameron Health. So he was in a great position to interview one of our guests at the MedTech Conference, Michael Mahoney, the chairman and CEO of Boston Scientific. Kevin and, uh, and Michael Mahoney talked a lot about uh, how Boston Scientific has, uh, has changed things around, has really got its winning spirit back. And uh, it was a great interview, so I wanted to share it with you on the podcast. So we'll uh, provide you with the audio, and you can hear, uh, hear the entire interview. So thank you, uh, Michael Mahoney, for joining us at the MedTech Conference. Thank you, Kevin Hikes, for leading such a great interview. And uh, thank you, MedTech Talk Podcast listeners, for joining us. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael Mahoney, Chairman and CEO of Boston Scientific. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, a little... Uh, crowd was going crazy. High on caffeine, although Mike arrived at 2 a.m. this morning, so hopefully you're a little more caffeinated than I am. So I'm not sure we need much of an introduction, but just uh, so that we can check the boxes. Mike is the chairman and CEO of Boston Scientific, as many of you likely know. $8 billion plus in annual revenue, 27,000 employees uh, operating in more than 100 countries. Uh, Mike joined Boston Scientific in 2012 as CEO, and over the last six years had led the company to uh, developing one of the strongest pipelines in the industry, uh, a remarkable return to growth and, and uh, creation of dramatic shareholder value. So thank you for that. Um, prior to Boston Scientific, Mike was the worldwide chairman of the medical device group at J&J and the worldwide chair of the Depew business. Uh, prior to Depew, Mike was the CEO of Global Healthcare Exchange, and uh, before that, spent some time at GE. Can't so, hold a job. Yeah, that's clearly. That's so, uh, so a quick story. So, when I first met Mike, it was uh, he was early in his tenure, probably a few months um, at BSC. He'd made the brave decision uh, to support the acquisition of Cameron Health, probably against some some non-invented here folks from the CRM industry, um, and he flew to Orange County from a family vacation. Um, to do a week of barnstorming, I think. And so the first stop was to meet me for dinner to talk about the deal. And uh, as Mike arrived, um, he got out of the cab, and he had a bag with him, and it was kind of ruffled, and on top of the bag was a ski helmet. And I'm thinking, okay, he, he joined Boston Scientific at a pretty tough spot in their trajectory. He's out to see investors and others on the West Coast, and he needs a helmet because he's going to get so much abuse. Turns out he had two bags um, that were identical, apparently one that had his ski gear in it and one that had his business attire, and when he uh, left the family vacation, he grabbed the dirty ski clothes bag. And so he's headed to do a West Coast trip with a bunch of dirty laundry. So I'm an Iowa grad. Yeah, and he rolled with it. Um, so what I'd like to do, Mike, is kind of ch- uh, focus our conversation in three buckets. The first is kind of your life before Boston Scientific, how you got there, your early career experiences. Secondly, why you joined Boston and what you've been trying to do there since you've arrived. And third, um, how Boston competes. And a couple thoughts on the market and some of the issues we've discussed this morning and how you guys are adapting and, and uh, trying to persevere in that market. Good, good. So maybe... Can I make one comment? Absolutely. Any remarks? I loved all of it, except for one part. When you said large cap companies today are cash rich, have a limited pipeline, and overly risk averse. You're not quite so large what, what cap. The, what's up with all that? You're upper middle cap. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. No, but we're in- interested in your perspectives on that. Obviously, right. Boston's been quite active, as we saw from that slide. So we're all interested in how your, um, your behavior and actions and, and vision affects you know, the rest of the ecosystem. Just want to get that out. Yeah. Well, so thank you. So maybe could you give us a little bit of background on how you got into healthcare and some of the early career experiences you had at GE and J&J, of course, and the Global Healthcare, healthcare Exchange? Sure. I'll, I'll keep this pretty quick. Um, I always wanted to get into healthcare. Uh, my grandfather was a uh, surgeon. 
And I, I, I was, that's really what drew me as a, as a kid. And um, uh, I went to University of Iowa, uh, took organic chemistry for two months, <laughs> and then decided uh, maybe finance would be the way to go. My friends were having more fun. Um, but uh, I was really interested in healthcare, uh, inspired by my grandfather early on, and uh, knew I wanted to get in. Um, I wanted to work for GE Healthcare right out of school. I was a Midwest kid out of Chicago. And um, they said, great, uh, you need an engineering degree or you need three years sales experience. And I had neither one. And so I, I, I was telling somebody out there, I was, I was selling, a, I sold cash registers door to door in northern Indiana for two years for NCR Corporation. And on my two-year anniversary, I, I, I begged GE to hire me, and they did. And so I worked for GE Healthcare. Um, interesting, worked with, uh, with Omar there, worked with Mike Minogue there, worked with a bunch of uh, med tech uh, folks there. But I was there for a number of years and loved it. Uh, learned a lot <clears throat> about high-performance companies, uh, d- did a bunch of different jobs there. And then I helped start a company called uh, Global Healthcare Exchange, which is uh, thriving today. And that was a, maybe the job I learned the most in. It was a startup, and I was the second employee uh, pulling together this new uh, new healthcare IT supply chain company that's uh, thriving today. And then I had the, the great pleasure to go to Johnson & Johnson and help lead the uh, Depew Orthopedic Companies and then work uh, with the MD&D division, uh, which was a great uh, experience for five years. And then uh, the Boston Scientific job came open, and it was, to me it was an uh, opportunity of a lifetime. So it's been uh, it's been almost thirty years now. I'm getting old. Thirty years in healthcare, and it's, uh, I love it. I can't imagine working anywhere else. So as you think about that, those first uh, I guess eighteen, twenty some years prior to Boston Scientific, any key lessons that you learned, either really tough, um, you know, hard lessons that you learned, or things you're particularly proud of that prepared prepared you for what you're doing now at Boston Scientific? Yeah, I think um, uh, early on. That's why I really I love, I love coming to these venture meetings. I was out in California about a month ago, and I think part of my experience at GHX uh, helped uh, understand uh, what you're going through and uh, kind of the guts and courage it takes uh, to lead a startup, and you really don't have as much of a backstop as you do at a big company. So I have tremendous respect for you in the room that are doing that, and that's why we want to be part of the venture community and why we're pretty active in that area. But I think a couple things that I learned, one, it always starts with uh, the talent and um, making uh, tough people decisions and strong people decisions is the most important thing you can do, um, and typically doing them sooner rather than later. Uh, I've learned quite a bit. Uh, having a culture, I've learned a lot at GE and at J&J and Global Healthcare Exchange that I got to bring to Boston Scientific, and really the, the engagement of the employee base to me is everything. It's everything, because m- most of your employees uh, for, for bigger companies don't care so much about the stock price. Uh, they want to be super proud of the company. Uh, they want to have development opportunities, and they want to have the culture that uh, that motivates them. So, uh, kind of people decisions, culture, and then risk taking. Um, you know, Boston wasn't in the strongest position when I joined, and uh, Global Healthcare Exchange was a startup. And so, I've been rewarded over the years by uh, taking bigger risks on uh, companies, which at the time yours was, but now is a no-brainer. Um, and uh, in the career path. And so that's why I respect so much the venture community because that's uh, really the fabric that uh, th- this community has. Maybe switching gears to Boston then. You know, why did you take the role at Boston Scientific? You were the head of the entire med device and diagnostic business at J&J, obviously very successful, um, tremendous scope of responsibility. What drew you to the Boston opportunity? 
And, and when you got there, what was as expected, and what were the surprises? So uh, what drew me the opportunity was I felt like I was ready for it. I had worked uh, in the diagnostic imaging world and healthcare IT world and then med tech uh, with uh, J&J, so I, and a large company and very small company. So I felt I was prepared uh, to do it. And then the reality for me is they don't come around very often. Uh, and it was a uh, location that I love, uh, and it was a company at the time that had a uh, $7 billion market cap at the time and hadn't grown in five years. And I saw it uh, as an incredible opportunity. And some advisors would say, you're, you're crazy at that time, because I had a terrific uh, job at Johnson Johnson at the time. So it wasn't an easy decision, but I viewed it because I felt I was ready for it, and I felt there's no... Um, better opportunity to try to turn a company around with a great team and uh, lead it uh, to a high-performance company where we are today. So I thought it was a really unique opportunity, and that, that captured me the most. At the end of the day, when I went back and made the decision, I just didn't want to regret not taking, not taking it. And uh, they don't come around very often. And they took a big risk because they knew there would be some non-compete issues and I couldn't uh, actually jump in the job right away. And so I really uh, give a lot of credit to the board of directors to take that chance to hire a CEO who couldn't become the CEO for a while, which actually that, that 10 months turned out to be the best part of the job because I got to spend so much time with our people, our portfolio, our strategy uh, without having to deal with investors so much. So that was actually a blessing. In terms of what um, didn't surprise me, is that a two-part question? Well, yeah, what were the surprises? Anything surprises? Uh, that was that worse than uh, had yeah, been advertised? Yeah, I think at the time, it was a long time ago, so we're a completely different company. Uh, the surprises were, maybe it's like uh, maybe my kids' uh, lacrosse team. When they're not winning, they get used to not winning. Yeah. And that, that was a big surprise for me is uh, when teams lose their uh, winning spirit, we talk about it, uh, or their competitive edge, and they start managing rather than leading, or they're getting used to growing below the market or not growing. You start setting targets that uh, are not aspirational. You start rewarding for uh, a lack of high performance. People get stock options. People go to trips because that's kind of becomes what you get used to. And I was really surprised by that. And um, we really had to really turn around uh, expectation levels, culture, and uh, kind of that um, getting used to not winning. Uh, was really a big surprise. And actually, that was my next question. You know, culturally, I've heard you use the expression, you know, the winning spirit in a number of different presentations. As you got to Boston, obviously, lots of people in this room who were probably part of the shiphold challenge and the issues in CRM, and you know, were probably pretty down in the dumps. You know, you mentioned you found a group that wasn't used to winning. How did you set about changing that culture? And what were you? Uh, what was your goal ultimately in the culture you wanted to create? And and how hard was that process? Uh, to, to put in place. Really I'm wasn't, sure it's still going on it really today. It wasn't even. too hard. It wasn't too hard because I, when I joined, I wanted, uh, I was committed for the long term. So I wasn't worried about just that one year's performance. And so I knew we had incredible technology. We had incredible engineers and a commercial team that uh, had been uh, maybe, maybe uh, tied down a bit. So the first thing we did was we literally looked at it as a startup and we started over. And we made a lot of leadership changes uh, with CFO, HR, Europe, Asia, a lot of leadership changes. And we started over. We created a new uh, advancing science for life. We created new values for the company. Uh, we got rid of five feet high of binders for uh, reviews, financial reviews. We actually talked. We had very candid conversations. And we encouraged our team uh, to take risks. 
we, uh, we empowered our global presidents. We decentralized a lot of things that shouldn't have been, that were centralized that shouldn't be. Uh, and we made the company uh, more global, um, uh, bet- better uh, rewards and recognition, and just a, uh, a, a kind of a, a culture that didn't punish people for uh, making bad decisions. And oftentimes when I was there, the early days, row double R, XL, XZ, you know, had a .05 rather than a .03, and, we, and they spent a lot of time on that. Yep. And we don't spend time on that anymore as yep. much. So how do you, as you work to change or instill a new culture in an organization, how do you handle a, you know, a decentralized uh, business unit structure like you have at Boston Scientific? And how do, you, how do you find the common core that everyone shares without forcing folks to fit into uh, you know, a particular cookie-cutter model? I think that, that is the key. At Med device is very different from pharma. Uh, we centralize uh, supply chain, uh, ops, IT, quality. Uh, but R&D... We have global business unit presidents. Uh, we have uh, R&D that's focused on those divisions. And that's critical because they, they own the number glo- globally. They're able to uh, shift resources globally. Um, and you, you create uh, you know, tough, tough benchmarks for them to, uh, to, to overcome. But they, they own that, uh, that business, and they drive innovation, and they leverage the, the, uh, the BSC value system across, and we also leverage R&D capabilities across the business. So despite being more decentralized, which I think is critical to speed and accountability, uh, we leverage R&D capabilities uh, across endo, across euro, across our cardiovascular, across neuromod and CRM. And so we drive a lot of value improvements in R&D and ops and supply chain. So we don't run them completely independent. But at the end of the day, the business unit president, I think Joe Fitzgerald's coming. You know, he's in charge of rhythm management globally and for delivering uh, sales faster than the market and income faster than sales. And he does it, and he's accountable for it. And leaders love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaders want to have autonomy. They want to have a little more space. They want to have room to make mistakes. And so I think, uh, you know, in MedTech Innovation, just like the previous speaker, we have uh, maybe half our port- two thirds of our maybe sixty percent of our portfolio that's more five ten k oriented and and a lot of it that's PMA, and so uh, you want the leadership team who's willing to make uh, the riskier bets long term, but also churn through some products and centralizing a lot of those functions. I think doesn't work. So maybe we, we talked about the cultural changes, the organizational changes in terms of the strategic footprint of the company when you arrived versus today. You know, how did you go about? Uh, you know, repositioning the company for growth? And what, where did you see the opportunities to build and those that you maybe had to back away from and trim back? Is everybody awake? Should we check? Is, is everybody awake? Yeah. <laughs> You're, okay, good. I thought it was just you and I up here. Yeah. Very comfortable. <laughs> Chatty. Uh, the things that we did, uh, a couple things. Just uh, interesting, I was thinking five years ago, we would talk to an investor, and 80% of their questions would be on uh, drug-looting stent, because uh, we have an issue with it at the time, and our CRM products. And if I go, if I speak with investors today, probably 10 to 15 percent of our questions are on CRM and drug looting stent, and it's 85 percent of it's on the rest of our portfolio. So the biggest thing we've done over the past six years is we've dramatically uh, diversified the strength of the company, and we've invested heavily. Although we're uh, taking share, we're number one in drug looting stents, and we're now number two uh, in de novo implants and CRM. Uh, we've significantly shifted the focus, for example, in rhythm management to heart failure diagnostics, more in EP, cardiovascular and structural heart. 
And we've invested significantly in our peripheral interventions business, our urology, our endoscopy, and our neuromod business. And so at our investor day, you'll see uh, in 2020, about 25% of our sales will come from DES and CRM and 75% from all other. And within cardiovascular, a third will come from DES and two-thirds complex coronary uh, imaging, FFR, and structural heart. So the biggest thing we've done is we've diversified the company over time uh, more and more into faster growth markets. So we compete in markets uh, now that we think that grow at four to five. So if we're growing less than four or five, we're getting beat. And so we've really, I think, repositioned the portfolio into markets that are much more appealing. And I think it's proved uh, three of the top four venture uh, is cardiovascular, I think uh, neuro and vascular access or something like that. And so we're, you know, we're not in the surgery business. We're trying to disrupt the surgery business uh, with our endoscopy franchise. And so in, in building that pipeline, where did you uh, experience pushback, if you did, or support? You know, as you built this new winning spirit into the company, I think back to Cameron Health, and obviously this is a CRM town, and you know, you, you know now that it takes 10 years to lo- no longer be a rookie in CRM, right? And so there's lots of folks that have been doing it forever, are really good at it. They were resistant to Cameron Health, for example. And how did you overcome some of that resistance, either in that uh, business or others, where people said, hey, that's not the way we do things. Why are we getting into these new sectors or buying think, these new products? I think we got lucky, and thank you for making a great company. Um, I'm not sure if, hopefully, I'm not sure if it would have happened today, because now I'm five years in, um, and we're so thankful we bought his company. At the time, uh, it wasn't a proven technology. It's a defibrillator with a lead that doesn't go in the heart. And if you're, we have incredible engineers. But if you're an engineer at that time, it, it was just very different. It's very disruptive, and it's not how we, how we did things. And the previous management did not want to buy the company. But at the time, uh, our portfolio has, has come so quickly over the past five years. But at the time, we were lacking uh, in some innovation, and we viewed it. Uh, more differently, differently. We basically said, what do we have to lose? Uh, if it doesn't work, we took a shot. If it does work, it's very disruptive, and you can have a, uh, a, a, a platform to save your life that doesn't touch the heart, and who wouldn't want that? And now we're tr- trying to expand indication. So it's worked out, but at the time it was a tough decision because when it cut against the grain of all t- traditional CRM and the traditional thinking, but we, we took the chance on it at the time before it was uh, approved, because we had nothing to lose, and you don't see that, uh, you very infrequently see disruptive technology that could change the game, and we think it has. Yep. And, you know, other, are there other parts of the portfolio that you're particularly excited about as you build, and you've taken other sort of big bets and, and expanded into new territories? Anything else that's underappreciated uh, in terms of an opportunity for the company? In, well, I, I think portfolio? one that uh, investors are starting to f- focus more on is our medical surgical businesses. They're uh, thir- almost a third of our revenue and 40% of our OI. And uh, we're expanding into markets, brand new markets in pathology and infection control. And we're doing a lot with disposable scopes now, which is really interesting. Uh, we've got a great new product in deep brain stimulation uh, that's doing very well in Europe that will get approved this year. We have a lot of venture bets in the neuro area and stroke and Alzheimer's. Um, uh, our urology business is doing uh, quite well, a lot with disposable technology and uh, something we call OR2020. We're big investments in uh, structural heart. Uh, we just doubled down in the TAVR industry uh, by buying a company called Cementus. And I think that kind of speaks a bit to the winning spirit. Is, I mean, we see that as a $5 billion market where today uh, we'll exit the year with uh, less than $50 million in sales. And that'll be $5 billion in 2020. And that's all open road for us. And we doubled down in the portfolio 
And we think we have a very unique portfolio that there now with a, uh, our two platforms, our Lotus platform and this company we just acquired to be very aggressive in that business. And we also have a Watchman uh, platform that's doing really well. So our, our pipeline uh, is very strong. It's, uh, it's, it's internal uh, organic R&D by our R&D teams. It's uh, M&A and some venture bets that we've converted. But we really are, uh, we just spend a lot of time there. We're not the biggest company. And so we have to be uh, category leaders. And so when hospitals are, are narrowing down their vendor list to, to two or three vendors, you know, we need products like uh, SICD and Watchmen and, and our Lotus program uh, to be very unique to stand out. Yep. You know, that's actually a great segue. And I should mention there will be time for a few questions at the end. So those of you that are awake, please uh, think about that, and we'll have a microphone circulating in the back. So you know, as, as you switch, switch gears here a little bit and think about how Boston competes in this ecosystem, you mentioned uh, you know, a couple of your strategies. But as you, as you see the consolidation occurring around you and you see you know, the big getting bigger and the sort of race for scale, how do you see Boston competing against some of these more vertically integrated companies um, that are trying to own the full breadth of the product offerings? I think we're, we're competing really well. Uh, you know, over the, if you look at our midpoint of our guidance in 17, our three-year growth CAGR is 7%. Uh, our EPS is 14%. And um, we've got a really bright future that we'll outline at our investor day uh, in, in a few weeks, actually. So we're competing uh, really well. We're, our, our total shareholder returns are, are better than most all of our peers. And uh, to, to us, we, that category leadership is everything. And, and so we think most hospitals today, you know, whether you're in Korea or St. Paul, uh, they want terrific innovation at low cost. And we are strong category leaders in, the, in endoscopy, urology, neuromodulation, cardiovascular, and rhythm management. And we have some disruptive technology there. So, so to us, you know, we'll be approaching $10 billion uh, in revenue. Uh, we'll be approaching uh, $2 billion a year in free cash flow. We'll have far less litigation the next three years than we did the past three years. So we'll be able to use our balance sheet uh, more effectively uh, with useful, more productive uh, w- uh, means. So we think with that type of size and a focus on category leadership and hopefully a faster company, then uh, that's very appealing. And the companies that have been rewarded with the highest uh, TSRs over the past five years have not been the biggest companies out there. So I think you can drive uh, unique shareholder value, more speed, uh, but we have scale at, at $10 billion uh, and $2 billion, uh, over $2 billion a year in, in free cash flow. That's, that's approaching uh, $2.5 billion in free cash flow. That's significant scale to do things. So we always look at opportunities um, but we don't obsess uh, about the scale question. We focus on category leadership. When we obsess about is on the customer side. You know, um, when the hospital systems consolidate down, which they have, and that's where the purchasing power is, and that's where you need to uh, have the uniqueness beyond our portfolio. We focus a lot on uh, economic value drivers, and we also help uh, um, uh, drive some operational efficiency with some of our programs that we have. So getting very close to the customer and their consolidating world. We spend more time there than we do worry about consolidation on the supplier side. So when you think about category leadership and you see some of your competitors expanding into shared risk models and, and service line management, running cath labs, for example, is that a place that Boston Scientific will ultimately need to go? How do you think about those sorts of you know, vertical integration activities in some of these categories? Yeah, we're a little less bullish on that than, than uh, another large company here in town. I, you know, we, we have shifted more uh, towards the diagnostic end. Uh, we have diagnostic pl- uh, pr- programs in our endo business, our urology. We've got a, 
a great new program uh, called HeartLogic, uh, which could be very disruptive over the next few years. That's a um, with an implantable defibrillator, you can actually proactively manage uh, a patient's heart failure, which is the largest ex- expense for hospitals. Uh, it manages, looks at respiratory rate, uh, impedance, uh, heart sounds, and it gives them one composite score where you can proactively contact that, that patient to keep them out of the hospital. And so we, we've gone more towards diagnostic capabilities um, to complement our med device uh, capabilities. And we've also, uh, we do have an offering of solutions on uh, operating room efficiency. We have the ability with partners to do uh, outsource cath lab services in Europe. Uh, we don't see that market um, uh, taking off as much except for a few uh, countries in Europe and maybe some uh, private hospitals in Asia Pac. And uh, so we're not as aggressive in that area. Uh, we, we put more of our time on our innovation, our category leadership strategy, and a bit more on the diagnostic side than we do on uh, outsourcing cath labs. You know, and, and building on the diagnostic point, um, clearly lots of opportunity to improve the management of chronic disease using devices. But, you know, in my personal experience, I think a lot of the folks in this room have tried to do that. And as compelling as it is clinically and technically, there are some really stubborn workflow and human behavior issues that you face when you try to get a heart failure clinic to start using impedance data on their daily routine to manage a patient. You know, they're trying to keep their head above water. Any, any insights into how long that process will take and if there's a catalyst or a tipping point at which we'd really start to see the adoption of those kinds of tools? Well, you're right. The, the, most EPs want to take care of the patient. They don't want to worry about the, the warning light uh, on the dashboard. And so uh, we're, we believe this HeartLogic platform is very unique in that it gives you that composite score of those indicators. And we, we tie it into our uh, latitude remote monitoring system. And so we try to, the effort is to try to make this platform as easy as possible because some of the other attempts in this area have not been so easy. They're getting, they're getting hundreds, hundreds of alerts a day, and, and they can't manage it. So we think the workflow is really, really critical, and we think we have some uh, capabilities in that area to make it easier to use. And also, uh, today, despite all the discussion on, uh, uh, on payment models, it's a fee-for-service world. And so over time, you're seeing sites like Kaiser uh, work with Boston Scientific more and more and more. And the reason is is because they like the longevity capabilities of our CRM devices within their own uh, patient population mix. And over time, if the, if the uh, financial incentives shift to population health, I think you'll see things like heart logic and proactive heart failure management become extremely appealing. Whereas today, you know, it doesn't really move the needle for a CFO of a hospital in a fee-for-service world. So uh, a lot of our, our products are aimed at uh, future payment models, whereas today, you're right, with all the distant lack of aligned incentives, despite how worthy a cause it is to reduce heart failure admissions, the incentives aren't aligned quite as much. So maybe uh, changing gears a little bit, as you... Uh you know, given the culture you have built and the sort of winning spirit and agility and speed that you've mentioned that you're trying to, to build into the not the all not all would DNA, agree with that, but <laughs> you know, how does that affect the way you interact with the venture community and the way you look at deals, the sorts of risks you're willing to take, perhaps now versus five or six years ago, the old Boston Scientific? And you know, what what could the folks in this room who are busy developing new technologies and therapies um, need to know about Boston's place in the market? As it relates to venture, I think it's. it's it, I agree with the previous speaker, or maybe it was you, Kevin. I think it, it is very important. Um, so, if your first, my first advice is to call Boston Scientific if you have a great idea. Uh, call us and then call us back. <laughs> um, 
and hopefully we're a good place for companies to land. Well, and my, my follow-up question is, you know, what should we think about Boston as a partner? Yeah. You know, in, so on the, fir- on the first one, the venture side, we, we've done lots of different things. We've done everything. So we didn't have the capability four years ago. Now we have about 30 companies. I think you saw we're number three in that list there. We have about 30 companies in the portfolio. Um, some we have uh, minimal equity in and, and no rights. Some we have a lot of equity, and we have our purchase option at fixed price. So we have all over the board there. We've been uh, inv- involved in a number of Series A investments, which is pretty unique uh, for, for many companies. So we have a number of companies where we've actually been involved with Series A. Um, so really, we look at them uh, you know, on a case-by-case basis. We rarely invest in a, in a company that doesn't have some leverage or adjacency to one of our businesses. And so we're not a venture fund who's going to invest in vision care uh, that's really outside of the scope of the adjacencies that we compete in. So we don't, wanna, we don't invest for the, the potential to make money in the investment. We invest for the potential to buy the company. And that's really our biggest focus. And so you don't see us going off into other areas as, as interesting. Um, we have some venture bets in China, um, a number of them in, in Israel, so it's not just in the U.S., but to us, it's really important, and uh, it helps fill in the gaps of our internal R&D portfolio, uh, and typically in some spaces that may be riskier or take a longer time to, to bring through. And there, are, there is the P&L challenge that you mentioned you know, for many companies, and you're looking at EPS dilution all the time when you're looking at these early-stage deals, and so you're always trying to manage that aspect of it. So we try to come up with creative uh, structures to minimize the EPS impact while having some... Uh, influence on the company. And we also try to help the companies. Uh, somewhere we have a small ownership stake, we don't do a whole lot, but otherwise we try to get involved in the clinical strategy, the regulatory strategy, we help them with R&D. I know how that feels. <laughs> Thank you. So maybe not so good. We're here to help. We're from Boston Scientific. Uh, you know, maybe the last question on that, um, how do you balance internal innovation versus you know, externally sourced either investments or acquisitions of venture technology? How do you keep your internal teams excited and motivated and feeling like they're still you know, the, the guts of the company's R&D effort and not discouraged by you know, a, a pretty active M&A market that you've been leading? Well, they are. They are. We spend 11.5% of sales in R&D. So outside of Edwards, the highest in the industry. And so you know, it's approaching a billion dollars of internal R&D and our largest platforms where we make the most money are, are organically developed. So uh, we do uh, lots of R&D discussions and reviews. And so it, it, it is the, it, it's all about innovation in this industry. And that's why how, how you're organized, I think, is a big deal. And so uh, the R&D teams internally are, are, are critical for us. And they're oftentimes, we also have, um, uh, you know, it's not, they're not focused just on improvements to existing products. So we have a, lot, a number of breakthrough products uh, being done organically. But we also kind of chart out um, what we want to do organically, uh, organically what adjacency we want to move into, and where it might make sense to do uh, M&A or venture. So we kind of chart that out almost like on a, on a chessboard, and it, it's, it's dynamic. Uh, but we, we, we look at that routinely, and that helps us prioritize our internal uh, R&D efforts. So maybe a couple final questions, then we'll go to the audience for a few. Uh, so as you think about the regulatory environment, and maybe sort of broadly speaking, CMS and reimbursement under that umbrella, you know, how, how are you positioning Boston to be successful? What changes are you guys seeing in that landscape and, and challenges or opportunities as a result? Yeah, so I think, I think the regulatory story in the U.S. is positive. 
you know, we've seen uh, improvements uh, in, in responsiveness and flexibility uh, with the FDA uh, versus prior years. So we don't see that. We see that as a trending positive. Uh, Europe is, is becoming a bit more difficult um, with the uh, uh, different clinical requirements by country and the, and the number of notified bodies. And so we're seeing uh, kind of early-stage strategies that just go to Europe uh, being reconsidered. So I think that's becoming more complex. Um, and then it also depends. Uh, each country in Asia is different. But overall, I think the regulatory pathway in the U.S. is trending positive, and Europe is getting a bit more complicated. The trick in the U.S. is more on reimbursement. Uh, you, you know, you take a product like a Watchman, uh, which is incredible, uh, we're doing really well with it. It's the, it's the product to reduce the risk of stroke if you have atrial fibrillation by occluding the atrial appendage. And um, getting through the, uh, uh, the reimbursement pathway there was very, very uh, difficult. And so you're dealing with different, um, different pockets of, of payers. And so your healthcare economics capabilities uh, now are, are more important than ever, uh, as important as the regulatory pathway. So just getting uh, FDA approval is nice but getting reimbursement is the key. And we have a great product called uh, Allaire for severe asthma. And thankfully, we just had uh, excellent um, long-term data presented last week, which hopefully will help with reimbursement. But that product's approved, but it has fragmented reimbursement. So for the venture group out here, uh, I think the, the uh, eye on the ball early of reimbursement risk and what category codes it get, get filled into or how do you get reimbursement may be priority number one. Because uh, uh, if it's a new market, a new space where you're going to drive the most value for your, you and your investors, uh, that reimbursement package is really, really important, and you're going to drive more value for yourself. That's well thought out. So maybe a final question on the emerging markets, which have uh, you know been alluring for many years, but a tough nut to crack. You know, how, how do you guys think about which markets, which technologies, how to pace your investment and, and, and growth in those markets? Sure. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if the venture world, is how much that applies, but it really, it's all very different. We call it emerging markets, but obviously each one's extremely different. Uh, so the, uh, the opportunities in Brazil are very different from India, very different from China, very different from Thailand. So we look at them all uh, individually. Uh, we don't have a broad-based emerging market leader. Uh, so we organize ourselves a bit different there, and our emerging markets business has grown uh, nearly 20% um, over the past five years, which is, which is good. And you know, when we look at our, even our portfolio, uh, it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. Uh, in some emerging markets, we're all in across our portfolio. In some emerging markets, we only sell one or two divisions uh, based on profitability, based on profitability, usually, and access. And so we look at them all very, very differently. Uh, you know, the key is uh, we, we've done a lot there. We've built um, a lot of training centers, a lot of training capability, because our brand name wasn't very strong in Asia. So now we have, uh, you know, training centers in Shanghai and Beijing and in Delhi, South Africa, Turkey, a uh, number of places. Uh, we now have R&D capabilities uh, in India and also in, uh, in China. So building up uh, R&D capabilities, training centers helps with the brand, and then registering products, having strong commercial teams, but really thoughtfully thinking about each market very differently and not peanut buttering the investment across each country is really the most important because you get sucked into investing in your whole portfolio in a country, That's and you don't make any money. And the country manager likes it because they want to sell everything, but it doesn't work. 
And so you really have to, and we're not great at this. We have to get better at this. Uh, be more thoughtful on what you're going to double down on and what you're not going to do at all, which is uh, sometimes difficult, but it's important. Great. Thank you. So we do have time for a couple of questions from the audience, if there are any. Nothing. Oh, there's one oh. behind you there, Tom. Oh, perfect. I was going to have to make one up. Here you go. Morning, gentlemen. Uh, Michael Lobsinger from the Center for Economic Growth in uh, New York. I'm a bit curious about so connected devices and collecting data and what you're looking or trying to do there. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're, the areas that we're most invested there are, are in our implantable device businesses. We have lots of digital capabilities uh, in our med surge businesses, lots of apps. Uh, to create uh, more rounded solutions beyond our product. But our most intense efforts are in our implantable device uh, businesses where you can just leverage getting real-time data all the time. And, you know, you're seeing in our neuromodulation business and also in our CRM businesses. And neuromodulation, you know, we're really trying to focus on uh, a great pain business that's you know, has teens growth in the market. And how do you create real-time uh, stimulation capabilities? Uh, based on sensor data, different sensors you can collect from a patient, how can that be activated uh, real-time with patients? So we're, we're leveraging sensor data and, and big data to try to close the loop on uh, stimulation platforms for, uh, for DBS as well as pain. And I mentioned some of the efforts uh, we have in CRM with HeartLogic and leveraging all the, that sensor data, uh, creating the algorithm that gives a, a physician or caregiver a composite that would, that would lead you to contact that patient 30 days before they're actually having a heart failure uh, issue. So they're actually contacting you and saying, you're 30 days away from having an issue. Are you taking your meds and so forth? And you're managing that patient proactively so they don't go to the hospital. So we're le leveraging a lot of data capabilities um, that we collect real-time through HeartLogic and our uh, Latitude devices. So the most intense efforts in our implantable devices, all of our businesses um, are trying to up their, our capabilities in our digital health uh, arena. And I think as a capability as a company, we're, we're, we need improvement there, but we're getting better. Uh, but it's clearly the, uh, uh, the, uh, one of our biggest investment areas. Thank you. Other questions? Here. Mike, uh, Jeff Pardo with uh, Gilda Healthcare Partners. <clears throat> you mentioned the improving collaboration with FDA, which I totally agree with, and the challenges that remain on the payer side. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we improve that relationship with payers and drive initiatives which make it more predictable, more transparent, and allow for you know the the uh, cost effectiveness of things to be established, but uh, a more predictable path for uh, for companies. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a good one. Uh, we're working on that. I think uh, when you try to bring new new capabilities to the market. That is, that is the, the issue, whether it's severe asthma product, whether it's a Watchman product, uh, things that are quite disruptive really have a high hurdle there. And so we're, we're simply trying to, uh, you know, we, we, don't have the, uh, we don't have the answer for this one. We're trying to just engage a lot earlier. We're, we're engaging earlier when we look at uh, companies to acquire on, on whether we think it would be reimbursed, what code, how would you create a, a new code, and so forth. So we're doing a lot more capabilities internally to assess that. And then with the uh, payer community themselves, just we're getting in earlier, you know, with the big insurance companies and the local MACs. 
to try to, uh, you know, really sow the seeds for future approvals and what the reimbursement climate looks like through uh, healthcare economics resources, our clinical teams, and so forth. Uh, That's what we're doing now, but we don't have the answer for it. Okay, I think, Tom, we have time for one more? Uh, Or not? We're probably up against it, so. Good. Well, so, Mike, thank Thank you you, very much for joining us. No crash helmet necessary. No, thank you. did this on no sleep, so thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And that is a wrap. Michael Mahoney of Boston Scientific, thank you for joining us at the MedTech Conference. It was a true pleasure having you there. Kevin Hikes, you did a wonderful job with the interview. Thank you for uh, leading the charge on the planning of the MedTech Conference as, uh, as co-chair, but also with uh, putting together this great interview. Happy to have you take over the mic of the MedTech Talk podcast. You can assist for one day. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, thank you for joining us. Do us a few favors. Give us a ranking on iTunes so people know how we're doing. Tell your friends in MedTech about the MedTech Talk podcast. The more ears, the better. Finally, do reach out to me. Just say hello or suggest someone we should be interviewing or issues we should be talking about. My email is tom at healthyg.com. That is the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. I would love to hear from you. That, again, is a wrap. Thank you for joining us and tune in next week for another tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.